The following message is brought to you by Baltimore Bible Church. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. We're delighted to have Doug Sacklaben with us. He is the lead pastor at Lorton Bible Church in Lorton, Virginia, outside of Washington, D.C. There's a mission field. He is a graduate of the Master Seminary and pastor churches in Alaska and California before moving to Virginia in 2001. Doug and his wife, Robin, have five grown children. Doug is originally from New Jersey, but he is a Baltimore Orioles fan. So you warm the hearts of some folks here today. God bless you as you speak to us. I feel like you have to say long-suffering when you say Baltimore Orioles fan. <laughs> We're getting there, though. What a privilege. Thank you. The singing is just marvelous. Just such a joy always to be in the front and just hear your voices. Thank you for the privilege of being able to bring you the word this morning. I want to talk about servanthood from out of Isaiah 49. The word servant appears often in the book of Isaiah, and it's used in a number of different ways. Isaiah is referred to as a servant. One of King Hezekiah's servant is described as a servant of the Lord. Um, the nation of Israel is described as a servant of the Lord as well. Um, each of these references uh, using a word that is difficult sometimes. People from different cultures, different places struggle at times with the word servant because it has a number of different meanings to them, not all of them flattering. But in Isaiah, as throughout scripture, it is a term that describes devotion to the Lord, commitment and obedience to him and the desire to serve him. And there's a section in Isaiah, chapters 41 to 53, where that word servant shows up 20 different times, and it's all referring to this particular servant. God says, my servant, or Isaiah describes him as the Lord's servant. We certainly see in the New Testament the, the picking up of this theme of, of servant because the New Testament writers, Paul and Peter and James and Jude and John, all at one point or another identify themselves as servant of Jesus Christ. And so they, they use that term frequently. We get this because it is... Our Savior, Philippians 2.7, he emptied himself to take the form of a servant in order to give himself. He teaches his disciples about servanthood. He teaches them that he had come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. And so when we understand what it is to be servants, we see Christ. We, we understand that from Jesus. He is our model in this. He teaches the disciples that the greatest among you must be the servant of all, and then says that one of the greatest honors for any who is a disciple of Jesus Christ is to hear the words, the approval of the master when he says, well done, good and faithful servant. So it would behoove us as disciples of Jesus Christ to grow in our knowledge of servanthood. And that's what I want to see in Isaiah 49 this morning. There are four passages in Isaiah that commentators typically describe as servant songs uh, in Isaiah 42, 49, 50, and 53. And, and those passages are all 
building on what we would understand to be a description of Jesus Christ, for those in Isaiah's day, 700 BC, they are being introduced to this servant, this one who is coming, and and each of the servant songs sort of fills out that description of who he is and what it is that they are to expect. We have the benefit of hindsight to know that this is the Savior who brings redemption, but they are beginning to see someone who is unique, who serves in a way unlike any before, who is bringing a salvation unlike they have known before. Now, one of the key themes in Isaiah prior to chapter 49, Glenn mentioned it before when he was talking about Habakkuk, which is the coming of judgment on the people of Judah. Isaiah is roughly a contemporary of Habakkuk. He's writing at a time when the nation of Judah is moving more and more to sin and rebellion, and they are being warned there is judgment coming. And the means that God will use to judge Judah is the nation of Babylon. He will take the army of the Babylonians, and he will bring them in around roughly 600 B.C., and they will capture Jerusalem, they will level the temple in Jerusalem, and they will take the people into captivity into Babylon. Isaiah also says that's not the end of the story. There will come another empire after Babylon. That will be the empire Persia, led by Cyrus. And he names Cyrus, which is astonishing prophecy that some of the critical commentaries of the Bible try somehow to explain away because here he's speaking of a man who hasn't even been born yet, may may not have even had his parents born yet, and yet he is speaking to them about this guy who will be used by God as an instrument of deliverance, who will free the Jews from out of captivity in Babylon. That will be a magnificent display of God's power. Because for people who saw the Jews brought into captivity, in that day and age, the the idea was your God lost. You didn't just lose, but apparently your God was not strong enough. And by freeing the people, it will be a demonstration that Yahweh is not defeated. That Yahweh always accomplishes his will. It is a great message about a magnificent salvation that God carries out in rescuing his people. And yet, something is still missing. Right before we get to chapter 49, at the end of chapter 48, there is a a celebratory pause at the end of 48. It's talked about Cyrus delivering them. And in 48, 20 and 21, it's, it's comparing how the people will be brought out of Babylon in the same way that their ancestors were brought out of Egypt. And it will, it will encourage them as they are brought out of Babylon to declare the greatness of God, that God has done this. Just as he carried our ancestors out and, and cared for them in the wilderness and provided water for them, so he will care for you. And so Isaiah 48.20 emphasizes you are to go out and you are to proclaim to everyone who will listen that the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. God did it. God rescued his people. God receives all of the glory for this. But then if you read at the end of, of chapter 48, there is this sudden and jarring phrase, the very last sentence in Isaiah 48. He's just commanded them to celebrate their deliverance and proclaim God's work. And then in Isaiah 48, 22 says, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Their earthly circumstances would have been ideal at that moment. In other words, they've for generations been in captivity and now are set free and it seems like all is well. And yet you have this interruption here. That says, yes, you may have been released out of physical captivity, but there's still a problem. There's still something that is separating you from God, and it is your sin. 
the, the fundamental wickedness that brought you into captivity still must be dealt with. And that, in Isaiah 48, 2, is what launches us into chapter 49. And the need for a savior, the need for one who will come as a servant to rescue his people. Uh, remind you, I know you know this, that there were no chapter divisions, verse divisions uh, that were in the original text as Isaiah wrote it. Those were added later on in history. So it would have flowed more clearly from 48 into 49. And you would see where there's wickedness and because of it, there's no peace. Now listen, here is one who is coming for you. And so let me read beginning in Isaiah 49, just verse 1 to start with. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. This is the, this is the servant speaking. And he says, listen, we've just heard there's no peace for the wicked and, and, and we should respond to that by saying, well, then how can we have peace? What, what needs to be done to be made right? And he says, listen, give attention. I'm going to speak to you now. And he will declare about himself as the servant. And so in verse 1, he begins to declare this news of salvation by saying, first of all, he is an individual. He is one who is born of a woman. And so this is different than... Israel, my servant, or Isaiah, my servant. This is one, in fact, who says his, his name will be given, his commission given by his parents even before he is born. We, we could go to the story, the, the Advent stories that we'll read from the Gospels here in just another month or so and re, be reminded that Jesus Christ was given that name. You shall call him Emmanuel, God with us, the, the Savior who is coming. And so this is an allusion to, to Jesus Christ and to his coming. But then verse 2. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. It's the servant speaking. And he's going to reveal qualities of his ministry, aspects of his ministry. I want to give you six this morning, six this afternoon, sorry, six aspects of the servant's ministry. And I do this both so that we see something about Jesus Christ and we magnify the name of Jesus Christ, but also because you and I are servants of Jesus Christ. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you are a servant of Jesus Christ. And so we, we want to understand what servanthood means. So as we see it in the servant here, the Lord's servant, we learn for ourselves what this means to follow him. So the first one is this, God's servant speaks. God's servant speaks. His word is powerful. The, the kings and the rulers of that day worked by force. They worked by who had the greatest army. Not necessarily different than today. Now we elect our leaders, but in most countries there, is, there are those who rule. They have power. They have authority. The servant's authority, it says, comes from what he speaks. It, it, his, his weaponry, if you will, is this sword that is his mouth. That is what pierces like an arrow. It is his words. It is the servant speaking the word of God. He will speak in such a way that the truth that he speaks will penetrate, just as Hebrews tells us, the living and active word of God that divides down to the thoughts and intents of the heart. And, and here it is describing the servant having this, 
this spoken word that pierces through to the hearts of men. And then verse 3 says, And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. I want to come back to the servant Israel, naming him as Israel in a moment. But, but the Lord's servant speaks, and second, he glorifies. He glorifies God. The servant confirming here that he's been called by God, says it plainly there in verse 3, that he said to me, you are my servant. So he's identifying that the Lord has, has called him, has designated him to, to be obedient as servant and to glorify him in this way. And he will do so, we know from verse 2, through his word, by speaking forth his truth. God will be magnified in splendor. Servants Jesus, right? We, we can think of John's great introduction to the coming of Jesus Christ when he says, in the beginning was the word. The word was made flesh, right? And he dwelt among us. When he uses that term word, the, the word word, he's showing us that Jesus is the revelation of God. He is he's showing us God. He's as if expositing God to us so that we might see the living God. So we're reminded again that he brings forth the word of God. Jesus in his ministry speaks with such authority that people repeatedly are drawn to him. They follow him. They, they want to hear him because he speaks as, in a way that they've never heard before. Some turn from him. His same spoken words convict them to the core, and they oppose him, and they hate him. And they want nothing more than to bring about his death and to stop him from speaking. Regardless of man's response... There is no way to deny the power and glory of God through him. He speaks forth the word. That's why the centurion stands at the cross and says that this one truly is the son of God. He has seen something, heard something from this that, that makes this no ordinary man. This servant is like a, a sword that pierces through to the heart. So here, let me just apply this for a moment to you and I as, as servants of Christ. Our instrument, our weaponry, what we are given to use is the word. We are called to obey and to speak the word. God's truth is provided to us, much like we, we sang right at the beginning when Martin Luther describes the, the power of the word. That is our instrument to proclaim his truth. We have his word and we magnify his glory and his splendor by living out and proclaiming his truth. Second Corinthians 10, God's word says, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but of divine power. Second Corinthians 10, 5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. We have God's truth to confront Satan's lies. We live out God's word in front of a lost world that needs him. We show them the truth of God's word by our lives and as we speak forth his truth. Paul said in Ephesians 6, we have the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That is our offensive weapon. That is the means by which we, we proclaim Christ. We live and speak his word. Now, let me just, before we leave verse 3, just a sort of side note here. He says, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. There's a lot of discussion over centuries as what, is, what does he mean by servant Israel? Because there are these passages elsewhere in Isaiah that refer to the nation of Israel and Judah as, as God's servant. And yet clearly he here is speaking of an individual. 
He's speaking of one born of a woman. He will say it again down in verse 5. He says, the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant to bring Jacob back to him. It's not, it's not talking about Israel in this point. It, it's not talking about Judah. It's not, if it was, based on verse 5, it would be saying that he formed Judah to bring Judah back to God. That, that doesn't quite work. He's talking to this individual who is this servant. And so we back to the question of why call Jesus Israel. Throughout the Old Testament, there are numerous references to Israel as God's servant. Israel put in a unique place that we could, we could track all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, right? And, and God speaking to Abraham in Genesis 12, saying that through your seed, through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. There will be coming through you. There will be great blessing. There's this servant role in Exodus 19. It speaks of Israel being commissioned as a kingdom of priests, God's treasured possessions. The nations were to look at Israel and they were to see something different. They were to see something distinctive that drew them to Yahweh, that made them see Yahweh. And, and what happened, we know, is the Jewish people repeatedly failed at this. They, they failed to be that light. They end up in exile and captivity as punishment. That is why this servant, this one who is to come, embodies everything that the nation of Israel was called to be. This servant will come and he will be the light to the Gentiles. He will bring truth to the nations. People will see him and they will be drawn to him. And so he's really using this to say Jesus now is everything Israel could not be. That's why he, he called him Israel here. It doesn't say anything. I'm not, this is not speaking of eschatology or millennial stuff. There's still more to come and it's not ruling out a, a ethnic Israel by any stretch, but it is saying that Jesus now as this servant is what you have failed to be as a nation. All right, verse 4. Let me read on. But I said, I have labored in vain. This is the servant speaking. I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. God's servant speaks. He glorifies God. And third, he trusts even when he is tested. Verse 4 seems odd because it almost sounds like a statement of failure. How does this come from the, the servant saying, I have labored in vain, I've spent my strength for nothing and for vanity? I would suggest to you that this is not the servant throwing his hands up and saying, this is all a failure. In fact, you, you know the lament psalms, roughly a third of the psalms, lament psalms, where there is some statement, some expression of pain, of hardship one is going through, but generally they're followed then by some expression of trust in God. God, I am, I'm, I'm going through hardship, but I trust you. I depend on you. Well, I would, I would suggest to you that verse four is sort of a mini lament psalm, sort of gives us the outline of one in a very simple fashion. If you can remember Jesus standing outside of Jerusalem in Luke chapter 13, when he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophet's and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. That's the, that's the picture here. It, it's of one that recognizes that, that the servant has come to his people and they have rejected him. And, and on the surface, if we look at the life and the death of Jesus Christ, 
purely on a horizontal sort of fleshly level. There's a point at which we look at that story and go, this, this doesn't make sense. Here's one who comes and who is sinless, who loves people, who teaches, who does signs, who raises the dead, heals the sick, gives sight to the blind, and yet at the end of his earthly ministry to the people, what do we see? The crowd shouting, crucify him, crucify him. We don't want him anymore. We want him put to death. And so there's a sense in which we see in that ministry that, that it could seem vain, but verse 4 doesn't end that way, does it? Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. Despite what circumstances may look like, that cry is followed by a sincere statement of trust in the Lord. My reward is from God. God will vindicate me. Yahweh will make any of the perceived wrongs right. What I have done the Father's will, and he will reward me. Jesus used language like this in John chapter 10 when he talks about the, the sheep that he has been given. I give eternal life to a sheep. They hear my voice. No one can snatch them out of my hand. John ten twenty nine. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. Despite all appearances, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was not in vain. The Father's plan of redemption, we know, was carried out through Jesus Christ. And so his... His reward is from his Father in obeying his will. Now, let me ask you, have you, you loved someone and shared the gospel with them? Somebody maybe close to you, family member, and you've told them about Jesus Christ, knowing that this is the greatest treasure I could ever offer to you. And that person has said, that's great for you, but not interested. And they turn from that and they reject that. It's a terrible feeling, but it's also a a reminder here of what it is to walk the path of the servant. It is Christ who they are rejecting. It it is our Savior, and we are warned of this, and yet we are reminded, just as this verse says about the servant, my right is with the Lord, that our labor is not in vain. That's how Paul concludes the great resurrection chapter in 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Proclaim Christ. Hold fast to him. Obey his word. Speak his word. Trust him for the harvest. Trust that he will do what what he promises to do and only he can do in turning the hearts of men. He is your reward. All right, let me read on. Verse 5. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. God's servant speaks. He glorifies God. He trusts when tested. And fourth, the servant knows his calling. Servant knows his calling. One commentator says of Isaiah 49, it is one of the greatest missionary chapters of the Bible. See that in the in the contrast between verses 5 and 6. 
In verse 5, the servant is told that you will go to the, the Israelites, you will go to the Jewish people, and you will proclaim to them, and you will draw them back. And certainly we see that in the ministry of Jesus Christ. He came to his own. Even though the nation as a whole rejected him, we also know that there were Jews, there was a remnant that did embrace Jesus Christ as Savior. And in fact, when we come to the day of Pentecost, it is in Jerusalem and it is begun with Jewish people. And, and the church is born there. And so he does come to his own. But the, the point of verses 5 and 6 is also to say in verse 6, that's, that's great, but the servant's commission is even greater. What the Lord says to the servant is going to the people of Israel, to the Jews, and calling them to repentance, that is too light a task. I want to give you something greater, the world. I want you to go to the nations. The, the message that you are proclaiming is salvation to, to all who will trust in you, to all who will turn. Christ Jesus, First Timothy says, came into the world to save sinners. And so his proclamation here is global. It is too light a task that I send you just to Israel, just to restore Judah. You are to go to the nations and be a light. Well, that commission is shared with who? It's you and I, right? That's what Jesus says in, in his parting words to the, the body of Christ, that as you are going, make disciples. Make disciples of the nations. Go and proclaim Christ. Teach them to obey everything that I have taught you. We are servants of Christ. It is our commission to bring the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to the communities around us, to, to encourage and support missionaries who go to other places, to carry on this work of the servant. And we will be tested, as Jesus was. We will be tested. In the same manner as our Savior was. But it is not in vain. In fact, look at, he, he sends him to the nations, verse 6, look at verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and the Holy One, to one deeply despised. So here's the Lord speaking to the servant, the servant being one who is deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves. Because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. That is a wonderful assurance from our king. People, even rulers, who despise our Savior, who abhor the king, will bow before him. We see this in the New Testament. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And here is the promise in Isaiah that these kings, these princes, these ones who would despise the coming servant and think nothing of him, they will bow before him and see him for who he is. This, is. this must be so encouraging for us because we live in a world that increasingly mocks the very concept of holiness and the idea of accountability to a creator God is considered foolish, and yet God's word vows that kings and princes will ultimately acknowledge who he is. They will know that he rules. So our calling stands. We're not to be sitting back and waiting for that day. We are lights shining in the darkness. Just as he is a light to the Gentiles, so are we called to be those lights who proclaim Christ and that calling will not be easy, and yet he has said, you have my assurance. I go with you, I promise you. I, I, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age, as Jesus said. All right, verse 8. Thus says the Lord, 
In a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land to apportion the desolate heritages. Fifth thing, God's servant seeks the Lord and receives help. He seeks the Lord and receives help. You see, it says there, in a time of favor, the Lord says to the servant, I have answered you in a day of salvation. I have helped you. That tells us something about the servant. The servant sought help. The servant called out to the Lord, and the Lord answered and gave him help. We, we know from verse 4 that there was testing for the servant throughout his ministry. We know that Jesus endured testing and opposition to the point that it might be tempting to even see his work as being in vain, but he will trust the Lord and seek the Lord's help. And he says, Yahweh will hear and answer. Verse 8, when it says that I will make you, keep you, and give you as a covenant to the people, biblical covenants are are. are demonstrations of God's pledge to do what he says he will do, that, that they, are the, they are the mandate of God's promises. This is what I will do. This is what I will provide. And he's describing here Jesus as the ultimate provision of the covenant. Jesus is the one through whom all of the blessings and all of the goodness of God come to us. Jesus is that great covenant. Friends, we are, we are servants of Jesus called to proclaim Christ, it will not be easy, there will be testing, and and what we're reminded of here is we need to call out for help. We need to pray. As as James reminds us, when, when you're facing difficult trials, ask for wisdom, he's eager to give it to you. And the servant here seeks wisdom from God, seeks strength from God. We called to seek out the Lord, to ask for help. I know you all can give examples from your lives and from the life of, of the church here of, of God's working in answer to prayer, of God just wanting us to humble ourselves before him. We, we last week, I'll just share a little bit from down at our church in Lorton, we did last Saturday uh, the fall festival kind of thing, you know, the games and the bouncy house and the petting zoo and, you know, just essentially a way to say to our neighbors, come, come on our property, find out that we're normal people and we love you and we just want your kids to come and have some fun and we'd love for you to come and, and, and meet us. And we set aside the day before that as a day of prayer and throughout the church we're praying throughout the day for a lot of different ministries, but in particular for that and, and had ambitions of it'd be really cool if a couple of hundred people came and had like 700 people that day and just nonstop flow of people. And it was such a humbling reminder God wants us to ask and, and, and call out to him for help and do what only he can do in moving the hearts of people. And so the servant was answered. He cried out and is answered. Verses 9 through 12. Let's read these. And this is now the servant being commissioned to speak. Verse 9, saying to the prisoners, come out. It's imperative, a command. Come out to those who are in darkness. Appear, show yourself. Come out of the darkness. They shall feed along the ways. And all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Sixth and final quality of the servant's ministry is he urges sinners to the light. 
he urges. Those, those imperatives, come, appear. This is not just a simple, hey, here's the truth, do with it as you please. This is the servant urging people that I have come to give you life. I've come to give you refreshment. Come to me. There is food for your hunger. There is water for your thirst. There is one who will walk with you and lead you. The gospel of Jesus Christ is is about God's dealing with our sin and bringing glory to God for what he has done in atonement, a beautiful message of hope and peace. And it doesn't demand that you earn your salvation. On this Reformation Sunday, as we were going through the, the solos, we were reminded that he doesn't set out a roadway and say, You've got to follow this roadway. You've got to do all the steps along the way and, 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 and keep doing everything that you're told to do along this path. And when you get to the end, you may or may not have earned some kind of prize, some kind of reward. You just got to hope that you've done enough as you've walked that roadway. He paints the picture here that God has lowered the mountains and made the roadway. He's, he's made it smooth. He said, come to me. Just Repent of your sin and turn to me and put your faith in me. He's calling us. He's urging. Sinners can have fellowship with the living God because Jesus has laid down his life. So now, Jesus' servants, you and I, have the opportunity to urge people to believe in him, to urge people to turn to him. We can speak to a broken world that is littered with evil. and We can say... I know one who brings true refreshment to your soul. I know the only one who can satisfy you completely. Nothing that you find in life will ultimately bring you lasting peace. It won't be trouble-free. It won't be emptied of every bit of suffering. But if you trust in Jesus Christ, he will walk with you every step of the way. And in fact, he says he's going to lead you along past the springs of water. He will guide you. He will take you through the the good path so that when you need water, when you need care, when you need wisdom, he is walking with us. And it all culminates in that beautiful picture in verse 12. Behold, these shall come from afar, north and the west. On the surface, to Isaiah's audience, very simply that would be the, the people coming out of captivity from Babylon. They are coming from the north and they are coming back to Jerusalem. And so there's that sense in it. But you and I know on a bigger scale that what is happening here is is the Lord calling people from the nations and they are streaming to him. Isaiah 49, 12 is a picture of people from every part of the earth coming to the throne room of the Savior, believing in Jesus Christ, being drawn to him and seeing Jesus Christ as king. Exiles who were in darkness who now come to the Lord's servant. The Lord's servant has made the way. He's accomplished redemption for his people. He's declared his gospel. He's glorified the Lord by his perfect submission to the will of the Father. In his darkest hour, the Lord trusted when tested, saying, not my will, but yours be done. Throughout his earthly ministry, he communed with his Father, and he went to a people in bondage to sin and urged them. I can give you living water that will satisfy your thirst forevermore. That ministry of that servant is now entrusted to you and I because we are in Christ, because we belong to Jesus Christ, and his spirit dwells in us and empowers us to to live out and speak his gospel and trust him when things get difficult and commune with him and ask him for help and urge the people around us to, 
to see him as Savior. As Isaiah 48, 22 said, there is no peace for the wicked, but the servant is coming. Listen, for the servant is coming. And you and I have that good news. And that's what ultimately leads this servant song to end in verse 13. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. What an appropriate way to end the servant song by saying to us, see, you see who's coming. You see who is coming to rescue you. You will be able to proclaim his good news, so shout for joy. There is no more, no more obstacle in the way. He says, come, come and believe in him and be saved. All right, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we believe you are this servant that Isaiah spoke of 700 years before you came to the earth, before your incarnation. And we read these verses with gratitude in our hearts that in all of these areas where we find ourselves so lost and inadequate and in need and broken by sin that you came to give yourself as a ransom to rescue us from the bondage to sin to give us hope and life and refreshment for our souls thank you Jesus we we join our voices with the the choir that is described in verse 13 as even the mountains sing out in joy that we would lift our voices in song to you for all that you have done, but also, Lord, that you would empower us to be servants. I thank you for this body of believers. I thank you for their faithfulness to your word, to uphold it, to speak it, to, to, to make it the, 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 at the forefront of all that they do to proclaim your word. And I pray that you would bless this ministry, that you would bless the proclamation of the word from this pulpit and from the people of this church as they go out into their neighborhoods and to their friends and family. Lord, may you instill in our hearts together, whether be in Lorton or here at Baltimore Bible Church, that we would love servanthood, that we would want to be like Christ and we would want to emulate him and we would desire to be servants who hold out truth and urge people to come and see Jesus. Lord, thank you for your, your great faithfulness to us. I pray that if there's anybody listening to this this morning that is not trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, that you would graciously open their eyes today to see that he came and lived a perfect life and died in the place of sinners so that by trusting in him, our sins can be forgiven. And he rose to crush the power of sin and death so that we might have life in him. Thank you for my fellow servants here. Help us this week to be devoted to you in all that we say and do and to be faithful servants. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.